Mm -hmm. I often say that when I hear something like that, a, a non-pathological variance in my office, I often say, it's fine. Your body didn't take the time to read my textbook. We can treat it anyway. <laughs> Welcome to The Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and with us today we have Dr. Christina Holland. Dr. Christina is a pelvic floor physical therapist who has also been a pelvic floor patient. She has seen how healthcare discrepancies impact patient care and experience, and she has started inclusive care to provide quality healthcare to everyone. She wishes everyone knew about pelvic health and how it relates to having pleasurable sex, strength and stability, and staying dry. Welcome to the show, Christina. I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I feel like this has been a long time in the works, and I'm glad we we're finally doing it. Me too. Yeah, we have, we had this one sketched out for a while, and what we'll get to know, well, have my getting to know you questions in a second. But just to to preamble, I am so excited to have you come and talk about access to healthcare and discrepancies to healthcare because I know that is um, a, a niche in what you do and a population that you work with. And now more than ever, it's a really important conversation to have about what, um, what healthcare needs really look like for the individual. <laughs> but yeah, just, I'm, I'm always, I'm just excited to talk about it. I have to sit on my hands a little bit because I get very <laughs> excited. I was like, let's jump the gun. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get to know you a little bit so then we can get to know what you're passionate about. I always like to start with, uh, when was movement first fun for you? Ooh, movement was first fun when I was young and a dancer. So it was really fun, which is why I started dancing. And then it became really not fun, which is why I stopped dancing. Mm -hmm. And then it became really fun again when I was in graduate school, actually. And I had, I ended up having an injury and figuring out nothing makes me want to be told, nothing makes me want to do something more than being told I can't. <laughs> And so, I, I, I see you in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was the first time that I really wanted to get in the gym and like mm -hmm. lift weights. And I, then that became really fun for me. So when I was in my mid twenties and in graduate school. Wonderful. And um, tell me a little bit more about this transition of dancing being really fun and then not becoming fun. Is that part of a, a physical journey or just a, a burnout? You know, I think it had a lot to do with just a lot of the culture around dancing. I mm -hmm. was um, trained as a ballerina as, as well as in a, several different types of dance. And there's just a lot of body image stuff that goes along with that. And I was doing it, a, it during a period of time where like I didn't feel super great in my own body. Um, and so just all of the that combined with the competition and I realized that all of a sudden I just wasn't really having that much fun anymore. And it mm -hmm felt heavier than it was worth. And so I stopped doing it in any sort of official capacity and started doing it like truly just in student led groups and things that didn't take as much effort. Um, mm -hmm. And that was way more fun for me. I love it. I love your phrase heavier than it was worth. And to find that passion where it can be light and enjoyable again. And I'm so glad I did because now mm -hmm. I dance in my living room and I dance in the mm -hmm. grocery store and I've taken some online Zoom ballet classes and everyone else has their video on and I do not because I'm like, I don't want to feel the pressure of not doing this right or not doing mm -hmm. it as well as maybe I could have 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, so it's nice. It's been nice to be able to do that and find my way back to it. I love how personal that is, that it's really just for you and just for the, the light and the enjoyment of it. Yeah, I feel the most like myself when I'm dancing. Oh, that's wonderful. And so what inspired you into, um, into your specialty as a pelvic floor therapist? Yeah, so I was trying to teach in an, an undergraduate anatomy and physiology course when I was getting my doctorate degree because it was going to give me a tuition stipend, you know, student <laughs> loans. Uh, gotta uh, need those when you're getting your Exactly. <laughs> and so I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and I had picked reproductive anatomy and physiology to give as a teaching demo, kind of as an audition for the, for the job. And all of a sudden I realized that these 18 year olds in Georgia may have never heard the word fallopian tubes before, and they were going to hear it out of my mouth for the first time. 
Um, and that felt really heavy and felt like it had a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to people in my network. I had been part of a peer education group in college um, and reached out to my network. Long story short, ended up in a, um, at a conference that was primarily um, PCPs and people who prescribe contraception. And it was all about how to talk to your patients about contraception and contraception use, um, which it, I did cer certainly did not belong at, but was really, really interesting and really opened my eyes to some of the medical management and some of the really interesting conversations we have with people around sex and sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was the very beginning. Some It was just like kind of a circumstance that one of the practitioners who was speaking was talking about um, female libido discrepancy and how a lot of her female patients think that it's a problem with them or their physiology, but actually there are so many things that can be going on. And one of those things that can be going on is that your pelvic floor is just made of muscles like any other muscles and that they can become tense and painful and have trigger points just like anywhere else. And that that can make sex painful and really unappealing. And so that was the beginning. And I like that that's, I mean, that's not a conversation that we hear often is about the, the biomechanics of our pelvic floor impacting sexual pleasure and sexual function. Um, we did have another pelvic floor specialist, Dr. Ashley Zimmerman on way back at the beginning of our recording. So we'll reference that as well. But other than speaking with um, professionals in pelvic floor, it's just not something we really understand. And I think um, most of us, certainly including myself for quite a bit of time, don't realize that our pelvic floor is truly made of muscle. Totally. And then I ended up, it was really interesting because so that happened six months into PT school. And then mm -hmm. my second year of PT school, I ended up needing a pelvic surgery myself. And so I had a urethral diverticulum repair and ended up with a lot of pelvic floor symptoms. And so all this stuff that I had been learning about in at this academic level then became very personal. Mm -hmm. And I talked to a lot of providers who didn't treat me in ways that I would have liked to have been treated. And so then that ultimately shaped my, the way that I treat now. Um, mm -hmm. And so I've been really lucky to be able to start inclusive care and provide people the care that I wish I had had back when I needed it. And on the line of inclusive care, if, if it's not prying too much, do you mind sharing some of these, um, these ways that you wish that you've been treated or ways that you include treatment now? Because I think it speaks to, I think it will speak to a lot of the conversations that women are probably used to having in the privacy of um, their own care providers' offices, but think it's just happening to them. Absolutely. I think that the number one thing that I was blown away by was that I was in the process of becoming a medical provider in this specialty, right? And uh -huh. I still couldn't get affirming care. I still was treated as like a secondary or like um, a spectator to my own medical decisions. I wasn't involved in, in all of the options or the decision. I didn't feel like I was involved in the decision-making. I didn't feel like my values were taken into consideration. I felt like I was uh -huh. dismissed. Um, and I, I had the medical background. I could speak the medical language. And so I think that was really enlightening for me. Mm -hmm. um, how much I deferred to my medical provider uh, mm -hmm. in, on things that maybe I, I wish that I hadn't deferred on, for example. I, and I, I just love this phrase. And I know that I'm going to be using it in my office a lot now. A spectator to your own care. And I think um, that is a really great way to start talking about um, the position that we're often put in, in sort of that white coat worship and mm. are sort of expected to take on even if we possess our own white coat. Um, when I went through my own pregnancy and delivery, I was in possession of my own white coat. I'd had my doctorate and yet again um, was asked to be taking a spectator's role in mm. how I was going to deliver and the interventions that I should have because certainly we wouldn't know about our bodies or have our own, have our own opinions about how that should go. Right. A hundred percent. So I often tell people that, you know, yes, I know an awful lot about pelvic floor information and dysfunction and what's normal and what's, and what might be pathological and can want to help you through that process. But I would am honored to be considered an advisor in this process because I'm certainly not an expert in your body or the way that it presents in your body. You're the only person that's an expert in that. And I need your expertise to, for my expertise to mean anything. And so what is that patient-doctor relationship start to look like in your office when you're asking them to step out of that spectator seat? 
Um, how does that conversation start to go? Yeah, so it often first presents itself when we start talking about an, an exam in my office. So mm -hmm. I do internal pelvic exams for people that believe that they need them. Um, and that in and of itself, I would like to do an internal pelvic exam is a different conversation than we need to do an internal pelvic exam. So um, that's the very beginning. It's like, this is what I would like to do because this is how I think I can get the most direct information. It's certainly not the only way I can get the information. And if that's not going to work for you today or ever, that's totally fine. Let's have a conversation about what might work for you. Mm -hmm. um, so just letting people know exactly what to expect and letting them opt in and out of things kind of like a li on line by line basis. And then again, while it's happening. So I've mm -hmm. explained it all to you on the front end. We've said like, will this work for you? Yeah, I think that's going to work. Okay, now you're on the table. This is what I would like to do. Is that okay with you? Is it okay if I do this now? And so there's always an option to, to opt out or to opt mm -hmm. in. I tell people that, you know, you really, you're in charge. And if this isn't going to work or you need me to stop for any, at any time for any reason, you do not have to explain yourself. You can just say, I'm done. Stop. Mm -hmm. You can put your hand up. There are so many ways to communicate that like this isn't working and they're all totally fine. But so I have, to, I have to warn people ahead of time that I'm going to ask for consent at every step of this process because people aren't used to it. And it, in, in the beginning, they start, it, it kind of quirks them out a little bit. I, and it's not, I, I, this, my brain just went about five different directions because I love this so much. <laughs> um, and it's not just about something that is as personal and so say intimate as an internal public exam assessment. I mean, this starts to apply to all aspects of healthcare as well. The idea of body autonomy and body responsibility as a patient isn't something that has been historically well respected within a physician's office. And I think there is a crucial line to draw that in life-saving emergencies, when you are not salient to give consent and the goal is to keep you alive, well, that's one conversation. Absolutely. But, but when it's any kind of preventative um, interventional care and you have a voice, you should be using it. And it becomes the doctor's responsibility to sort of um, uh, re-explain expectations. Because I certainly have that in my office with chiropractic adjustments where you know, a chiropractic adjustment for anybody who hasn't had one can be a really startling and feel quite invasive. And for other people, it is just the most delightful thing that they're looking forward to getting as soon as they possibly can. But there's a whole spectrum of people across the board. And at any stage, the conversation becomes, this is your body, how would you like it to be treated? And I think that that can apply to so many different types of medical interventions if the doctor takes it upon themselves to encourage it. Because yes, the conversation is usually, I'm sorry, what, whatever you think is right. <laughs> right. A hundred percent. And mm -hmm. I, I also tell people that it's my, it's becoming less of a secret because I've told so many people, but my <laughs> secret hope is that if you can expect that your medical provider is going to ask for consent to touch your body at all of these different junctions, that you will grow to expect other people will also ask for your consent at all sorts of different junctions. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think building in that level of consent is taking away a hierarchical view of, I know better than you, I know more than you, and regardless of what makes you comfortable or not, this is happening. And it's our responsibility as providers to realize that, that those structures exist and that mm -hmm. it's, we have to play an active role in dismantling them so that people can get the care that they need in the way that mm -hmm. they deserve. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that is entirely on our shoulders. So what are misconceptions then? I mean, one being that um, the patient isn't in charge of how the exam and pr procedure goes forward, but what are other misconceptions about pelvic floor work or the need for it? Sure, so I think one of the biggest ones that I am grateful to see changing in, in mainstream media is that it is an expectation that after pregnancy and delivery, you're gonna leak, right? That you're gonna have urinary incontinence of some sort Mm -hmm. um, conversation we're still not really having that I would like to see is that as we age, it's also not an inevitability that we're going to leak and have urinary incontinence. Um, so that would be the big one, a big one. Another one is that we have such a narrative around, um, that our sexuality, and it feels so personal because we don't talk about it and we don't talk about what's, what's normal or to be expected or the normal amount of variance that happens in sexuality, particularly for people who have vulvas, but that, mm -hmm. um, 
sexuality looks different for lots of different people and people who have vulvas typically experience sexuality and arousal differently than people who have penises. Mm -hmm. Even just in that explanation, it also brings up that one, people who have vulvas are women, people who have penises are men, and that only women need pelvic floor therapy, only people with vulvas need pelvic floor physical therapy, only people mm -hmm. who get pregnant and have delivery need pelvic floor physical therapy. So I feel like that was a lot all at once. I, and I, I love the segue into it, and especially um, talking about one of the biggest misconceptions I have in, in my office as I refer people out to this is that um, pelvic floor therapy is only for women. And then the idea that only women have vulvas. And so much of what is happening in pelvic floor, we all have pelvic floor musculature, and we can all have dysfunction in it. The way that that dysfunction is accessed and assessed is different based on your physical anatomy that you're carrying, but it is not a gender-specific treatment at all. And one of your specialties, I know, is actually working with individuals at all stages of transition and understanding and appreciating their pelvic floor. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about that and um, what that kind of access looks like? Sure. So I work with a lot of gender non-conforming people, um, gender non-binary mm -hmm. folks who may have a vulva, but don't call it a vulva. They have, mm -hmm. they may have different words for their genitalia. Um, they may have different words for what they're experiencing. They may have undergone different levels of surgical intervention, hormonal intervention, and all of that can play a role in what they're experiencing in their bodies. Um, so mm -hmm. It's been interesting through my career learning how to talk about genitals in a non-gendered way. Uh, we, real, we don't often consider how frequently we are making assumptions pretty much, pretty much on what people have in their pants before we choose to interact with them and how we're going mm -hmm. to interact with them. And that happens to everybody, um, whether it's someone you're meeting at the grocery store or someone that you're meeting in your medical office. Um, so the very first step for me was acknowledging that oh, I was making all these assumptions, which when you say like, oh yeah, I made these assumptions about you based on what genitals I think you have. Sounds very bizarre. It does. Um, but, yeah, doing it. but that's what we're doing, right? It's yeah. like when we decide what pronouns to use for someone, we're like, okay, what do I think, what genitals do I think you had when you were a baby that the doctor used to write on your birth certificate is basically what it all goes back to. Mm -hmm. um, and so just realizing those what assumptions we're making so that we cannot make them and leave space for people to tell us about themselves. Super important. And that is not our default setting in, in culture at all. And it's certainly not our default setting in medicine. Mm -hmm. So increasing access for those individuals looks like making it clear that you can come into my office, whoever you are with whatever you have in, and ask me for whatever you need. And I'm going to leave you space for you to tell me all of that instead of assuming something about you. And it makes um, just having that kind of space to say, to tell me about yourself, to tell me your story. It really takes away from what we think should or should not be happening in someone's pelvic floor. That if we stick with this very binary idea of a pelvic floor is exposed to look exactly like this, mm -hmm. it becomes very narrowing and it eliminates an entire spectrum of people in varying degrees of transition that may not be in any particular category and that the understanding of the care that they could get becomes quite limited. Absolutely. And it applies even to cisgender people. So people who are who mm -hmm. identified female at birth and then live their lives as female, were born with a vulva and feel like a woman, um, but that don't participate in penetrative intercourse. They don't care about penetrative intercourse. Their partners mm -hmm. don't have things that they want to be penetrated with. Um, and so it's that same, the importance of that is continuing to allow for that space for someone to tell me that as opposed to me assuming something about them. Mm -hmm. And again, this speaks to um, the responsibility on the provider. Uh, part of our medical training is so very often to look at things in a clear black and white kind of manner. This is functional, this is normative, this is non-functional, this is non-normative. And the disservice that this does is taking a look at all the variation in bodies. And this isn't just part of genitalia and pelvic floors but so many people run a spectrum throughout their body as far as being, oh, say, hypermobile versus non-hypermobile. The normative within that body, however they call it, is 
part of that person's own health history and experience. And if we can leave the space to hear about that in whatever category of health that is coming to us, it really puts us in a position to serve them better. I couldn't agree more. I, I think medical providers often do people a disservice by holding them to these standards that we learned about in school or we read in our textbooks that doesn't actually take into consideration completely normal non-pathological variance between individuals. Mm -hmm. I often say that when I hear something like that, a non-pathological variance in my office, I often say, it's fine. Your body didn't take the time to read my textbook. We can treat it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you can be pain-free even if you have some of these, some of this variants. Mm -hmm. um, so just giving people the hope that this can be different. It doesn't, you don't have to suffer from this mm -hmm. and you're not broken because you're feeling like this in the first place. And so what are some of the barriers to healthcare aside from um, having a, having a, a physical body that is somewhere on a, a spectrum of normal that might not be part of our textbooks. What are other um, barriers to healthcare that we see for, for non-binary folks? Yeah, so I also see trans folks who are primarily transgender women. So they have gone bottom surgery. They've had gender affirming surgeries to mm -hmm. ha ha get the vagina that they've always wanted, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then teaching them how to, how to get the most out of that is a mm -hmm. very is a part of my job that I really love and I'm really grateful for. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so there, so one affirming care providers um, and people just even knowing that, that that's even a possibility because there is mm -hmm. this cultural narrative and, and community narrative that you don't know who's safe and you don't know who's going to decide to approve or not approve of the decisions you want to make about your body based mm -hmm. on what they, what box they think you belong in. And that mm -hmm. applies across the board, but especially for, trans and non-binary folks. And what I love about having that opportunity to teach how to, use, um, how to use a body part that you've never had is that it also eliminates or perhaps just shines light on this assumption that um, because you now have the body that you've always wanted, it is now an innate experience of having it. Um, I've seen in my office a lot of really interesting biomechanical changes that happen, even if it's something like a, a hormonal intervention and our bodies start to change. And we see someone carrying more muscle mass than they once did or less muscle mass than they once did. And how you work and carry that change is something that we need to be taught. And in these situations, this individual perhaps didn't have an opportunity to learn it from early childhood as they might've liked it is still something that needs to be learned. Right, and unfortunately, there's this narrative and this fear in the community that, mm -hmm. well, if I am not just pleased as punch with the results of this intervention, whether that's hormonal or surgical or whatever, mm -hmm. that it means that I can't be taken seriously as an individual and I can't be mm -hmm. taken seriously as a woman if I'm not just the most stoked with what I happen to get in terms of mm -hmm. genitals. And. I find that kind of ironically humorous because if you take a look at anyone perhaps on a, on a cisgender um, side of the spectrum, how often are, are we not happy with our bodies too? I mean, we all have the right to be un, unhappy with what we have or unhappy with where we are in a process of recovery. Um, simply arriving at a place that you'd always hope to be is, is not the end point, it's not the destination. Yeah, I love something that I have just loved so much in my mm -hmm. practice is seeing how very similar the the concerns and the fears of trans women it mm -hmm. are to the concerns and the fears of cis women, um, mm -hmm. which just I think to me further further validates that one we're all we're all human and two that we're all women, and that mm -hmm. being in ex having the experience of being a woman is a is a unique experience fitting into what's society being able to fit you into a box does provide a certain amount of culture in that and mm -hmm. we're all in it together. That's true. I, when it comes down to wanting our bodies to serve us the best, um, there, there is no gender line about that. And, and removing that among cis, binary, male, female will go a long way to, um, to equalizing our experiences, I would hope. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but so going back to other things that can create discrepancies mm -hmm. in healthcare, certainly 
um, access to insurance. Luckily in Colorado, we have really pretty decent Colorado Medicaid and there mm -hmm. still just aren't a lot of people who take it. And unfortunately, a lot of transgender patients, a lot of transgender people do have Colorado Medicaid um, mm -hmm. because of a lot of these other structural uh, issues in terms of being being considered hireable and having jobs and socioeconomic status and all of these things because of the way that culture perceives being trans um, mm -hmm. as a, a disability and as a a hindrance and just without the respect that it really deserves um, and with mm -hmm. a lot of stigma that it certainly does not. So a lot of those types of things also play a huge role in people's access to care. And I mean, yeah, <laughs> the, the mouthful of thinking that how someone identifies within their body somehow becomes a, a disability to be able to do work or a hindrance to engaging in the world is, is in itself ludicrous. But then to see that further impact on an economic and a medical level, and you're right that here in Colorado, it's a really fortunate thing that Medicaid will accept and identify. But if you take a look at any other state that might not have that in place, that leaves a great number of people of individuals without healthcare and further limiting their ability to find a healthcare provider that will see them for who they are to begin with. So yeah. the resources become extremely limited. Yeah, and we were kind of talking about this before, but so having insurance options, so having Medicaid mm -hmm. for people here in Colorado is awesome, but that's one level, but then the next level mm -hmm. is who is taking it and how, what, what providers are, can they actually access with that? Um, mm -hmm. And so for example, Denver Health ha takes Colorado Medicaid. And so they see a lot of transgender and non-binary folks. And they're also an LGBTQ center for excellence, um, which allows for that and makes, they, they've prioritized being good, a good set of providers for that population. Um, mm -hmm. And which is such, so sad to me, it's such a low bar because it's just treating people as people, but mm -hmm. fine, fine. There is a certain level of, of be, these types of conversations, right? Being aware yeah. of and trying to make changes in access for folks. Um, mm -hmm. But that even in this weird time where a lot of people were doing telehealth and not everything was open has disproportionately impacted people in the community. So it's just, it's, it's important to talk about all of the levels at which, you know, the, uh, this population may or may not have access, often does not have access. And to have this idea that, you know, and Denver Health, I mean, yes, we need more people that, that are held, more um, institutions that are held up to that level of excellence. But the fact that that remains sort of an anomaly mm -hmm. becomes a frustrating and, and upsetting reality. There's another um, major healthcare organization in Colorado, um, SCL Health, that is now currently working to change um, it's EHR, it's electronic health records, to now include correct pronouns for non-binary. Um, and it's an ongoing project over several months to get medical billing and coding to simply represent an individual as they seek to be represented in their medical office, which in the absence of that, I think something that doesn't often get considered, you know, you walk in and you identify as she, your page says she, there are now, in this case, accurate assumptions about how you're representing in the medical care that you need versus walking into an office and having your paper say she and you identifying as he or they or some other part of a spectrum. There's a lot of self-explanation and self-revealing um, uh, re that you might need to do in order to get care that might not have anything to do with what genitals you have in your pants. Yeah, to perfect mm -hmm. strangers. And like what mm -hmm. amount of safety is there gonna be? Because there are certainly people who continue to be unsafe to trans and non-binary folks. And so mm -hmm. for what for whatever reason, political, religious, cultural, you know, whatever, whatever reason mm -hmm. it is. Um well, none of which are acceptable. But so <laughs> it's I think you can, we can't overstate how hard it is for these folks to get access mm -hmm. because I think once you hear some of their stories, uh, it makes it makes my stomach churn sometimes, mm -hmm. to be very honest with you. And it, as a provider and as someone who cons who thinks of myself as a medical provider and, and considers mm -hmm. my part of myself as part of the medical provider team, I 
my tendency or like my gut reaction, it sometimes has been to be like, oh, that can't, that can't be right. Right. Like there must've been some sort of miscommunication. Surely uh-huh. that didn't happen the way that you've internalized it happening, which is also not fair and not true. And uh-huh. it takes some, some practice to shut that down and again, leave the space for people to tell their story and trust people, which is the same, frankly, as when people come in with stories of trauma and we have mm-hmm. to, we have to trust people to tell their own stories. I wasn't there. I'm not the expert of your body. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to the beginning of our conversation to say, this is your body and your body autonomy to say what you are comfortable receiving based on the story that came with it. And I think there also needs to be an acknowledgement here that while we are both medical providers that are, are really trying to do our best by um, serving all populations that walk in the door, um, that I am a cis woman. And so my ability to engage and, and to speak to an experience is incredibly limited by my own experience in the medical world. There are conversations that I have just not had to have. And that means putting aside a lot of those expectations and experiences. And you know, again, here having this conversation on behalf of a group that isn't represented right now on the podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I think that that is, there's no way to overstate how important that is. And Mm -hmm. that was part of what I realized through my medical, my own medical journey. Not only was I learning a budding medical provider with the language, Mm -hmm. I was also a cis white woman who had private insurance and a lot of education and, you know, really understood a lot of, I I just had a lot of privilege on my side and I still felt mistreated and felt like I wasn't respected in my medical care. So I think that also really started kind of made it was one of the building blocks to why inclusive care became a thing because Mm -hmm. I realized how much privilege I had and still how mistreated I was. And so what was happening to other people? Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful way to put it. And so what impact have you been seeing with inclusive care and, and in the populations that you're able to treat with it? Yeah, so I've, I've been really lucky to build a community. Um, people who, who engage and decide to get their care at inclusive care, it's, it's not, um, it goes certainly beyond my experience in the healthcare system and goes very mm-hmm. much into, um, we're, we're friendly and we're friends and we, there's just a lot more being seen. Um, mm-hmm. People feel a lot more seen. I feel a lot more seen. Um, I feel like I, I'm not as tied to, I have to be the most knowledgeable, best, most professional person in this room at all times because I have the white coat sort of situation. Um, and people who don't typically have access to care and have gotten access to care are extremely grateful. And so I, I like to think, I don't, I do not personally feel as an individual provi- provider and practitioner that I can make big global changes to big healthcare systems or insurance or <laughs> anything like that. Um, I wish I, I believed that, but I don't. Um, but I do believe that I have changed, that people have been changed by the care I provided in terms of realizing that healthcare can be safe and conversations mm. about sex can be safe. Um, and so I'm really grateful to have been part of that journey and change in in people's lives because I hope that that is something, regardless of what of what interventions I provided, I hope that's the thing that people carry with them. The, the body autonomy that you are in charge of you and that there are safe people. And I wish it were easier to, that you could assume that everyone was, but there are they are out there and you can find them. And what I love, you, you said it just really briefly at the beginning, but as far as being seen within that story, And the more that I engage in healthcare and the more providers that I talk to like-minded, it's that awareness of being seen that I'm I'm starting to see as being the real nugget of health and improvement. And when you provide that opportunity for body autonomy or the opportunity to tell that complete story, that, that story of self, that story of an experience in healthcare, you can start to provide, provide opportunities to heal. We're certainly not doing the healing, but provide opportunities to heal on a variety of planes, whether it is that physical, that psychosocial, emotional, of knowing that healthcare can be safe. And in those moments, knowing there's a provider that could be safe that um, an individual could come to, now that's giving future opportunities to not put off seeking care until a mild condition becomes more acute or deadly or problematic. And it has far-reaching impact. Absolutely. And 
And not only do I hope to make an impact on the people that I'm working with, but they have all, their stories have all made an impact on me. And the work that I've, that I've done and had to do to kind of separate culture from reality um, has been nothing but good for me. The treating mm -hmm. these people has been like such a gift in my life and in my practice. And I'm so grateful for it. And so even outside of, um, of an individual community, let's get back to a conversation of autonomy and healthcare at, at its whole and, and what that might look, look like um, for people to start advocating for themselves. I mean, certainly it's on the physician's shoulders to um, be respectful and be responsible, but what lessons do you hope your patients to take away or, or patients that might be listening today take away in how they might talk to their healthcare providers? Yeah. So what I, and that was so personal because I got through this whole, um, this whole healthcare journey myself and, and just felt gross about it. I just didn't mm -hmm. like it. Um, and then knowing what I know and having the education that I have, I was able to go back and look at it objectively with some time and space and help from mm -hmm. other people and realize that none of the, none of the doctors I saw did the wrong thing. Like the mm -hmm. interventions they chose were all very valid, but I, but they did maybe did it in the wrong way, or it just wasn't a good fit. And so it still wasn't the right situation, even though the technical thing that they did was the right thing. So can you talk a little bit more about that? How, how the technical intervention can still be perceived and received as uh, an inappropriate and physical affront? Yeah. So in my instance, um, I needed, I needed a pelvic surgery. I basically had an outcropping in my urethra that was, it was a cyst and then it had, it had um, burst and it was collecting urine and then healing over and then bursting again, collecting urine. And basically it was, uh, I was in a position where I was, could be getting some amount of infection over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so I needed a surgical intervention to be able to cut out the outcropping and put it back together. And it was an intimate surgery that involved cutting through both my vagina and my urethra and then closing both of those things. And I had to wear mm -hmm. a catheter for 30 days, right? All of those things super were absolutely medically the right things to do. The problem was that my provide, I didn't feel like my provider um, was open to my, my questions about it. She didn't um, respect that I had concerns about like, what am I going to wear with a catheter? I was in my mid, you know, I'm a, was a 24 year old woman mm -hmm. and I was in physical therapy school, getting my doctorate degree. And I was on my feet all the time. And like, how is this going to fit into my life? Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I asked questions like, well, well, will I be able to exercise? And I was dismissed. It was like, why would you want to do that? It's not that long. It was, I mean, it was, it was long. I wore a catheter for 30 days. Mm -hmm. Um, and was severely impacted by, by that. Um, and am I going to be able to have an orgasm? Like, can I have sex with a catheter in and dismiss? Like, why, wh like, basically like, why would you even worry about that? Why is that a consideration? Um, questions about, well, what are there going to be sexual repercussions afterwards? Um, all of these things that, like that were values of mine. I wanted to be able to exercise. I, honestly, I wanted to feel like myself. I mm -hmm. wanted to be, have a vitality and I wanted to be a sexual being. And I wanted to be able to live my body, live in my body the way I had been living in my body. And I wanted confirmation that I was going to be able to do that. I wanted expectation for what to expect during and after the surgery. And then I wanted confirmation or expectation at the very least of what I was going to be able to do after. Um, well, it becomes such a limiting conversation when providers, while doing the right technical thing, start to look at you as an individual patient as an accumulation of symptoms and interventions and ignore the humanity that surrounds you. Because essentially what I'm hearing from your story, and I've heard from many other stories, both my own and my patients, is the concerns that they bring up to their doctors are about how do I exist as the human I know and love myself to be? while going through this procedure. And the implied dismissive advice is just be the procedure for 30 days. It's not going to kill you. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But, and not even, even if that's, even if that's the answer, if that's the expectation, like, no, you're not going to be able to live your life as you would like to for these 30 days, but mm -hmm. you can again, but what, what am I expecting after that? What am I expecting for the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. And can we, can we have it feels like such a small ask as a patient to go to your provider and say, can we talk about my personal concerns about how I interact with this? 
because of course, as a layperson, you know, average patient, we don't know about catheterizations. We don't know about surgeries that impact both the vaginal wall and their urethra. And why would we? That's not our specialty to know about. And so these become really valid questions. And I see so many um, opportunities to spin out and have um, growing concern and panic about should I, could I, should I, could I, where a five minute conversation might be really impactful just to say, I see your concern and this is really how it may pan out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so insofar as the advocating part, I think, I, I think I did an okay job advocating for myself, even though I knew that I was being considered a difficult patient and was trying and she, her with her, like the surgeon with her behaviors and mannerisms and the way that she spoke and the amount of time we had together, right? All those things was trying to minimize the, my opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so taking it on myself and saying like, no, I, I do have questions and these are my concerns. Um, was something that I felt comfortable doing because I had more expertise. I think if I had maybe a heart surgery, I wouldn't have felt as comfortable talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But knowing that, I think something that helped me was knowing that, and something I got out of it insofar as advocating goes is yes, maybe I am going to be a difficult patient for you. And I'm sorry that you're this 20 minute period of time that we have together is now a little bit more challenging than it would have been otherwise, but this is your job and this is my life. So knowing that from the patient side of, yes, fine, maybe you are, they are going to perceive you as being a difficult person and that sucks mm-hmm. and it doesn't feel good. And I do not mean to minimize that that does really doesn't feel good because it certainly does not. Mm-hmm. And it's your life. And so it's your body and you get to have an opinion on that and take control of that. I'm so glad you brought up the label of being called a difficult patient. Because it really is, I think it's been really well reinforced that if you are going to ask questions and advocate past protocol, if you're going to dare to ask personal questions, then you really are not just tiptoeing, but kind of cannonballing into the difficult patient pool. And that's a very narrow lane that we ask, um, that many providers ask their patients to stay in, which is, I just need you to agree with me right now. And, and to just, you know, to wander away from that to suddenly become a difficult patient is an unfair label, but certainly one that is handed out pretty regularly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I knew exactly how my provider felt about me Mm -hmm. and, and then it was like, there was nothing I could do. And so ultimately at the point at which we got to that point, I was the, the next lesson I learned was you get to fire your doctor. Um, Mm -hmm. there's an amount of privilege again, that comes with that, because especially as if you get into, if you have medical conditions that are not well known about in the community or require specialist care, your options might be limited. Um, Mm -hmm. but in general, something I learned is that I did, I do have options and I get to choose to utilize them. And sometimes that means paying more out of pocket. Sometimes that can mean, that means traveling farther. It can mean Mm -hmm. a lot of inconvenient things, but to me, I realized that I would rather be inconvenienced in those ways and spend those resources, whether it's time or money or whatever, um, to Mm -hmm. have a provider that I trusted to care about me as a human. And because it didn't, again, it didn't matter how great their interventions were if I didn't trust the intervention or the, or the impact behind Mm -hmm. the intention behind it. That's true. You bring up two such really valid, fantastic points is that um, I think very often we think that the doctor we get, the doctor that's assigned to us, that's, that's it, that goes into sort of that hierarchical respect. And the fact of the matter is, oftentimes it's just chance and an insurance spreadsheet that provides you with that doctor. But also the ability to fire a doctor does come with a fair bit of privilege, whether that is money, time, resources, um, and as you mentioned also, condition. Um, especially if you have that chronic condition, you know, so many women particularly, um, but you know, all genders, all, all people across the binary scale will find that it can take seven, eight, nine, ten 10 doctors to listen and hear what you're saying. But oftentimes, or perhaps those seven to 10 doctors are the ones that needed to be fired to begin with because they're not hearing the whole story. Right. And it's really mm-hmm. hard to navigate because the flip side of that is, is that things take time and mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to be in a relationship with some, like have this relationship going to get the whole story and see how it changes over time. Right. That's, that's part of the art of medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but so how do you how do you navigate not like something needing time and not getting the results you expected maybe in the timeline you expected them and also knowing that maybe i'm just seeing the wrong person it's hard mm -hmm. it's not easy um mm -hmm. i think my best explanation or my best suggestion for that in myself is okay well can i at least find someone that i think is a straight shooter and is telling me the truth can mm -hmm. i trust the provider to that they are trying to do the best by me and then maybe i have more room more wiggle room more grace for the time that it takes Mm -hmm. And in having that relationship with the provider, like you said earlier on in our discussion, is that it takes the pressure away from the provider, you as a provider, that you have to be the smartest person that knows everything. If you don't stand on that pedestal of, it's my responsibility to tell you exactly what to do and here's how we're going to do it, but rather know it's my responsibility to hear your story, understand all aspects of it, treat what's in my wheelhouse and then help you find the people that you need to complete this journey, it becomes uh, fulfilling and community driven. And in my experience, a very positive, um, very positive experience, even with difficult conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then it, when you come to medicine with this idea that body autonomy and patients being the expert of their own bodies is the most important thing, it makes, mm -hmm. It, from my perspective, sometimes it makes it harder for me to find community partners and other providers that I feel comfortable referring to um, for mm -hmm. that exact reason, because I don't necessarily know that that's how all providers feel. Um, and mm -hmm. so connecting again with like-minded people is so helpful because it helps me get people to provide good recommendations for people to get to where they need to go. Absolutely. I completely agree. Anyone that I refer to in my network has that sense of body autonomy and, and seeing the whole patient. Otherwise, it's too easy to get pigeonholed and it's too easy to just have a bad experience. Yeah. Not to say that you're always going to have a good experience in your doctor's office every single time, but at least to have the opportunity to talk about it and be seen for what that experience, um, what it brought up for you. Totally. I think there's just more potential for harm than we necessarily mm -hmm. learned about in school or in early years of practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly in school, the opportunities from harm, for harm go into um, uh, doing a procedure, doing a technique incorrectly and causing bodily harm in that way, which is still very true. I mean, let's, let's be honest, there's a whole spectrum of types of techniques and interventions that can occur with varying degrees of harm and impact and we need to know how to practice our craft. But unstated in so much of our education is how we can harm our patients by not seeing them fully as they sit in front of us. Absolutely. So gosh, we covered so many big pieces of change and hopes for future and, and holes in the medical profession, but maybe wrapping up on a more optimistic note, what are changes that you are seeing? What are um, ways that people are advocating that you see as as powerful well i think the internet's been great for that i think mm -hmm. getting more information out there um and making more people aware and educated that's part of why i put out a lot of content on instagram i like to do in-person um workshops or now online workshops uh and online courses and things like that because i just want i want the information to be accessible to everyone because i think mm -hmm. that with better information, people can make better decisions. Um, and I think the decisions about our bodies are the ones that are some of the most important. So, and I think that's happening, which is really cool to see um, mm -hmm. and happening in ways that are really accessible to people and the internet's making that possible. Absolutely. I mean, there are so many providers and certainly we're going to put you on that long list of fabulous people to look at that are setting out to educate and inspire so that we can know more about the bodies that we possess and ask deeper, more personal questions about them um, rather than the, what can often be remnants of, you know, schoolyard, well, I wonder about this, is it really true kind of conversations. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, another thing is I think the conversations about sexuality are coming out more, mm -hmm. um, which I'm super grateful for. And I'm, I'm glad that it's it's in the cultural conscience, consciousness, mm -hmm. although I think it's still slower than I would like and people are still not as comfortable talking about it with their medical providers as I would like. And medical providers aren't as comfortable talking about it with their patients as I would like, but it is mm -hmm. changing and I'm very grateful for that as well. Me too. I'm, I'm always 
just so proud of the patients that come in and bring up any kind of sexual issue or sexual dysfunction as part of their interest in, in their care because so often that impacts our quality of life, physical pain, our intimacy with our partners, and to think that it's not worth bringing up it to your provider. Though, of course, there are the instances where it might not feel safe either. Um, it, it, again, it limits seeing that whole person that's in front of you. Yeah, I know you're used to asking the questions, but are, is there anything that you're excited about <laughs> seeing? <laughs> I love it when the questions get turned back around. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm excited to see um, what feels like is a growing generation of doctors that and, and other providers that really feel the need to see the, the whole person in front of them and to respect that body autonomy. Um, I, as I do more of this podcast and more of these conversations, it is surprisingly easy to widen my network with like-minded individuals. Um, before I started, um, I think I I just recorded my first podcast a year ago this month. So about a year ago before I started, um, it felt really lonely to be some kind of uh, rebel saying you get to decide what I do to you in, in my office. And now they're, they're all out there and it's becoming a grown mentality. And with more options of providers that, that think and act that way, it'll be easier for patients to seek out and fire the ones that don't. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on a year in the podcast. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, we actually we released our first one in August, but we got the ball rolling um, last year in May. So it's, it's been just an absolute joy to get to speak to so many fabulous people. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. And so that people can continue to learn and educate themselves on uh, on their bodies and on their options, how can they find you? Yeah, Instagram is great. So Christina.Holland, K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A.Holland, like the country. Um, and uh, my website is www.inclusivecarellc.com. And if you want to reach out to me directly, you can um, send me a DM on Instagram or if you're not an Instagram user, my email address is Christina, K-R-Y-S-T-Y-N-A at inclusivecarellc.com. Wonderful. And we'll have all of that linked in the show notes as well so that you Perfect. can find Christina and all of her fantastic information. Seek her out for care if you are here in the Denver area. Yeah. Um, or if you need a telehealth consult, that's also an option. If you're, and if you're having trouble, if you, if you think you need in-person care, but don't know how to find a pelvic floor physical therapist near you, I'm happy to help you do that. Any of those things. Wonderful. So many fantastic resources and such a great conversation that just I, does not happen enough in healthcare. So thank you for joining us and sharing all of your experience, expertise, and learning and um, may it inspire many providers and patients alike. Yeah. Thanks for making space for it. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we'll see you all next time for another episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Be well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.